Greetings and welcome to a Pile Death podcast. I'm your host, Babylon, and I wanted to thank you all for being here. We've made it to Act 2 in our book, Watershed. I know, it's been stressful and seems doomed, but here's hoping something good comes of it, huh? Thank you to everyone who's been listening. Let's get started. Watershed by Paul Thomas Ferguson Act 2 The soul's dark cottage battered and decayed lets in new light through chinks that time hath made. Edmund Waller Interlude October 1986 In the week that followed my first interview with Hire Jameson, I was not idle. He had given me a great deal of information, telling me a story that was, in my estimation, too credible to believe, at least in its entirety. That did not stop me from wanting to hear more of his narrative, but that had to wait. As the old man talked, the afternoon faded into evening far too quickly, and his energy with it. Our first discussion ended with Jameson inviting me to return the following Saturday, which presented me with a dilemma. As interesting as the story had been so far, it had barely touched on Vishnu Springs. I did have a few curious bits of background information that might prove useful for my term paper. The tension between father and son over the property and the competition between Dr. Aiken and Wilbur Peck being two such examples. Yet, that material would yield a few paragraphs at best. I needed more about Vishnu Springs, and quickly, if I hoped to produce a quality paper by the 1st of December. It was clear that Jameson had much to say, but how long would it take him to say it? My dilemma was over whether to continue interviewing him at the risk of wasting my time on a subject that would prove inadequate for the project at hand, or move on to something more manageable. Changing topics was probably the safest option, yet that would mean admitting defeat. Besides, the man's story had drawn me in. I knew that regardless of what I decided to do about the term paper, I wanted to hear the old man's tale, no matter how many weeks that might take. I decided to stick with my topic and plead with Mr. Jameson to talk about Vishnu Springs first and the details of his life second. With this plan in mind, I returned to the old man's home on the third Saturday in October, six weeks before my paper was due. Hire Jameson placed a pitcher of lemonade on the small table between us and wandered past me wordlessly. His eyes were bright, showing none of the exhaustion I had seen the week before. If anything, he seemed energized, restlessly moving about the room, looking at everything and nothing. Where did I leave off? I twisted around in my seat, looking at him, seeing Hire Jameson at the fireplace mantle with his mother's ceramic bell in his hand, I realized that he knew exactly how far his narrative had gone. 
I flipped through my notes. Uh, you gave me some good background about the Hicks family and ended with Jane and Ebenezer embarking for Jacksonville. Jameson barked out a wheezy laugh. <laughs> you make it sound like a holiday, boy. Tell it like it was. Squire Hicks lost his marbles, and his wife nursed him all the way to the nuthatch. I grinned, just trying to be diplomatic. He waved me, silent. A diplomat is someone who thinks twice before saying nothing. Can't quite remember who said that, Jameson sighed. It never ceases to amaze me, even reading the papers and talking to people as little as I do, that no one ever says what they mean anymore. Words mean things. So, why not use the ones that actually say what we want to say? I nodded, trying to determine the best way to steer the conversation. When did Darius start building the springs? The old man did not answer right away, but circled back around to his chair, staring at me intently as he sat. When he finally did speak, it reminded me of my father on those occasions when he would launch into professor mode to teach me some sort of lesson. There are many ways to tell a story, son. People like me prefer to take their time with it, while others just like to get it over with as if they're ripping off a band-aid or something. Take our friend Dr. Aiken, for example. He was a good enough sort, I suppose, and adequate for a country doctor, but he was also overly serious, entirely unimaginative, and a dull-as-a-post storyteller. Aiken would come into the room and say, I shot a 12-point buck yesterday, but... It ran into the woods before I could finish it off. Shall I tell you about it? And I'd be thinking, well, it seems like you just did. After all, what was left to say? Once you know how a story ends, did the details matter as much? He leaned forward to look at me in the eye. You've heard the story of how I found and lost my treasure, and you've heard about Aiken's 12-point buck. Which tale are you more likely to remember, mine or his? Well, yours, I suppose, but that's right, because you know exactly how I felt when I found it and when I lost it. If I'd sat you down and started out by saying, I once found a huge treasure hidden in a cave, but it vanished before I could haul it away, you wouldn't give my story half a thought. You see what I'm getting at? I nodded, understanding that I had little choice but to be patient and let Hire Jameson relate the story at his own pace. He smiled. I know I can ramble a bit, but I also know that what I have to tell you will make more sense in context. I'll do what I can to get it out before you grow as old as me, but I'll tell it my way, if you don't mind. I sighed. Sure. Jameson leaned back with a grin. Good. Now where were we? Chapter 10. Away from Home. 
1883 to 1884. Heyer pulled the wagon into the barn and unhooked the horses with what little energy he had remaining. Listlessly guiding the animals to their individual stalls, he forced himself to brush them down before going back to the house to face whatever might await him. The boy was certain that some sort of punishment was at hand, for he had taken the wagon and horses without permission and been gone for much of the day. If Ebenezer Hicks had been home and in charge, Hire had no doubt that the old man would have handed him over to the authorities as a thief. At the very least, he expected to lose his position at the Hicks' home, which would leave him where, exactly? Even without this transgression, there seemed to be little reason for Hire to stay on in the service of Darius, currently the only resident of the house. Frank and Annabelle had discussed moving in temporarily, but even if they decided to do so, they no doubt had their own servants. Where would he go? The question had been much less frightening when he thought he had a fortune waiting for him in the cave. Now a dismissal would be a death sentence, resigning him to a life in the wilderness, or worse, an orphanage. Such worries plagued his mind as he worked in the stables, spending much more time than he had to, first grooming the various workhorses and then moving on to Rhea. He would miss his new horse terribly. He knew, though, perhaps not as much as he would miss seeing Annabelle, Frank, and Darius. Heyer had nearly finished taking care of Rhea when Annabelle walked into the barn. Rather than interrupt, she sat quietly on a hay bale watching him work. He knew she was there, but kept silent in order to avoid breaking the spell. As long as he pretended to be alone with the horse, he could act as though he was in a happy world without punishment, where stable could be an impenetrable fortress of joy. Once Hire finished rubbing Rhea down and oiling her hooves, he could no longer delay the inevitable. He faced Annabelle, though he wasn't able to look her in the eye. Are you all right, Hire? He glanced up expecting a more accusatory question. I don't know, ma'am. Annabelle nodded slowly. No, I don't suppose you do. You're going through a difficult time, but it's time we talked about what to do with you. He looked down at the ground again, tracing a line in the dirt with the toe of his boot. I know. Then the dam broke and tears streamed down his face. Please... Don't send me away, Mrs. Hicks. I I know I shouldn't have taken the wagon. I just, well, I, I can't explain it. Annabelle smiled a little, tears coming to her own eyes as she paused to consider her words. Hire. No one is going to send you away unless you say that you want to go. You have no proper family now, and this is the only home you've ever known. As for the wagon, to tell the truth... With all of the business going on in the house this morning, we didn't even notice it was missing. I see no reason to tell the men about it, if that's your fear. Yes, um, thank you. The sigh took much of the tension out of the air. Annabelle walked over and ran her hand along Rhea's mane, 
drawing a contented breath from the horse. Then, turning to the boy, she asked him the question he had been dreading. Whatever did you need the wagon for? He looked at her with a pained expression, collapsed onto the grooming stool, and told her about everything. The fortune teller, the treasure, the wolf, even the woman in black, relating the story of the past few months, came surprisingly easily and was a tremendous relief to the boy. Annabelle made a good audience, listening attentively, interrupting occasionally to solicit additional details and clarifications. In the process, she exhibited a variety of emotions, amusement at his efforts to hide the treasure, horror at the thoughts of the boy coming face to face with that wolf, respect for his frugal plans for the money. So you really did want to be Tom Sawyer. You know Tom grew weary of being taken care of in the end. Hire shrug. Well, he was wrong. All I ever wanted was for Ma and me to live free without her having to work so hard. She is, was, the only family I had. I mean, I think I might like to travel some, and I think I'd help Mr. Darius with his plans for the springs if I could, but I never hoped for too much for myself. I just wanted to be happy and safe. Annabelle put her arms around the boy. That sounds like a proper dream, Hire, and one I hope to help you find. As she pulled away, she looked down at him with a smile that filled him with hope, and he sniffled. Whatever I can do to stay here, just say it. I'll work hard as I can, if only I can stay. She chucked him under the chin. Now? I already said you were staying, haven't I? What you'll do, we can discuss another day, but in the meantime, Frank and I were talking, and we agreed that it might be good to take you away from here for a time. Away? Despite her reassurances, his fears began to return, and he wondered if they were simply trying to trick him into leaving so they could place him in a boy's home. Looking past higher at the world outside the stables, she frowned. With all that's happened, it's become gloomy around the farm, especially with the weather turning. Winter hasn't been bad yet, but the cold air bites harder every day. She gave Hire a broad smile. If you agree, we'll go away for a time, to someplace warmer, maybe, and see what we can of the world. Frank says that we can go for a month, maybe two. What do you think? He could not believe his ears. You mean me and you and Mr. Frank? Would Darius come too? Her mouth turned down a bit. No, Darius won't come and neither will Franklin. They need to stay here and handle the business until Ebenezer is well enough to return. It might be winter on the farm, but there's still plenty to do. The boy's mind was suddenly full of possibilities. In the space of minutes, he had gone from despair to elation, and he wondered how much a heart could take before it completely wore itself out. Where would we go? Where would you like to go? He didn't have to think too long about it. 
I'd like to take the train to New Orleans or Paris. Annabelle laughed. Well, I think you'll find we need a boat to get to Paris. Is that all? He shrugged. Well, Miss Annabelle, I don't really know how many places there are. I'll go anywhere you like if you say I can go with you. She smiled and hugged him again. Of course you can. I'm sure we will have an unforgettable time. To Hire's great surprise, the normally frugal Frank spared no expense getting Annabelle and the boy outfitted for their trip, while frequently expressing his regret that he could not join them. His sentiment was genuine, for he clearly wished to see something of the world. He also had no desire to be apart from his wife for an extended time. Yet there was no way around it. He simply had too much to do in the absence of his parents. Frank agreed that it would be good for Annabelle and the boy to get away from the dark atmosphere of the farm, and though he would remain behind, he enjoyed assisting with the preparations. He made ample use of the Montgomery Ward wish book, so much so that the postman delivered one or more packages every day for two solid weeks. There were new clothes for the travelers and complicated portmanteaus, a large one for her and a small one for him, that could not only hold all of their belongings, but could also be set up on one end to serve as both dresser and wardrobe while on their journey. By the third week of January, the pair was outfitted and ready for travel. For Annabelle and Frank, it was a weepy farewell. Even higher was a bit teary-eyed as the wagon went through the front gate. Looking back, he watched the house get smaller and wondered if it would look the same when he returned. The hardest part had been leaving Rhea. The boy had been unable to relax or give himself over completely to the adventure that lay ahead until Franklin gave him every assurance that he would take care of the horse. Due to a minor inconvenience, the journey did not begin smoothly. They arrived at the station in Tennessee, assuming that they had 30 minutes to wait for their train to arrive. However, delays up the line, all too common since the recent adoption of the new standard time zone, found them waiting at the depot for more than three hours before the southbound passenger locomotive finally pulled into Tennessee. Despite this annoyance, by the time the train left the station, Hire had pressed his grinning face up against the windows of the coach, eagerly looking forward to every new thing the world had to offer. Annabelle also looked out the window, but as Hire glanced at her, he caught a trace of regret and thought he knew why. Will it be hard to be away from Mr. Frank for so long? She glanced at the boy with a faint smile. Yes, it will. But we have been apart before. Seeing his curious expression, she went on, seemingly changing the subject. Did you know that my father is a federal judge? Hire shook his head. He hasn't long been so. When I was a child, he was a lawyer, then a circuit judge. This is when we lived in Peoria, 
Once I was old enough, he let me travel with him in the summers. My mother thought it inappropriate to spend my days surrounded by men in the courts, but she needn't have worried. My father was as kind as could be at home, but on the bench he was a looming colossus, stern and humorless. What man would have dared approach me with such a guardian as Judge Daniel Doyle watching over her? Mr. Frank. Mr. Frank, indeed. One week, towards the end of the court season, we rode the circuit to Macomb. On our first night in town, there was a harvest dance on the town square, which my father and I attended. I wasn't there more than a quarter hour before Franklin came right up and asked for a dance. I was so shocked that I just gave him my hand and walked out with him without saying a word. You see, I grew up in society. I'd only ever danced with young men whom my parents had first introduced to me, and usually the sons of men my father knew from the courts. Yet, here was a young country fellow, a farmer, no less, coming up and boldly asking a shy 16-year-old girl for a dance. Neither of us said a word the entire time, and I'm sure he thought me a fool, though he'd never confess it. He wasn't afraid of your father? Annabelle grinned. Poor Franklin had no idea who I was until after our dance. At the time, I thought he was just reckless, and after that dance, he thanked me politely and went on his way, leaving me as silent as when he found me. I never expected to see him again, yet half an hour later, he came back, this time walking out to my father and asking his permission to dance with me. I just stood there, watching as my father looked him up and down, appraising Franklin's clothes, which were not poor exactly, but not fine either. I could tell that he intended to turn down the request, but then he looked over at me and... Well, father always did indulge me. This time, nothing could keep us quiet. I apologized for being so silent before, and he apologized for treating me unjustly. You see, Darius had dared him to dance with me, knowing, as Franklin did not, who my father was. Once he learned the truth, Franklin felt shabby for seeking me out on a dare, so he screwed up his courage and approached my father properly. I asked him why he bothered as I would have never known the truth. Do you know what he said? He said, I would have every man here know that it takes no dare for me to want to take you for a spin. I adored him for that gesture. I danced with the others over the course of the evening, but my memory is of the one I shared with Frank Heyer. How'd you come to be married? It was not an easy thing. I saw Franklin when I could the rest of that week, at first over my father's objections, and then when his reluctant, with his reluctant permission. I'm certain he thought I would enjoy myself for a few days and that he'd hear no more of the subject once we left Macomb. Yet after father and I returned home, Franklin wrote me and I wrote back. Mother tried to dissuade me, but my father said little of the matter. 
You must have seen the depth of my feelings, though I scarcely could have explained them myself. Of course, once Mother learned how prominent Ebenezer Hicks was in the county, her objections eased. She would have preferred to see me with someone more appropriate, but she could see how serious I was. The following spring, Franklin called on me at our home in Peoria, where he asked me for my hand, and we wed in October, and I left the city for life on the farm. The boy smiled and glanced out at the landscape, rolling by before turning back to Annabelle. Will you let me see your house in Peoria? My parents no longer lived there. Soon after I married Franklin, my father took a place on the federal bench in St. Louis. I suppose I should be grateful that I was not there to see them abandon our Peoria home. It was a fine place. What is their new house like? the boy asked. Annabelle smiled at him and tousled his hair. See for yourself. We should be there by supper time. The journey south, already off to a rocky start, continued to face delays. The train to Tennessee was so far behind that they arrived in Quincy too late to continue as planned. Franklin had reserved a private cabin for them on the train to St. Louis, but they missed it by more than an hour. Annabelle refused to be discouraged, however. After several minutes at the counter pleading with the vendor, she persuaded the agent to exchange their train tickets for passage on the Verna Lay, a small paddle wheeler that had taken advantage of the mild weather to continue excursions on the Mississippi River out of season. By the time the boat pulled away from the dock, the two travelers were three hours behind schedule, steaming slowly downriver towards St. Louis. Annabelle and Hire felt exhausted by the time the Verna Lay left Quincy, sliding past thin sheets of ice that would soon thicken enough to close off the river until spring. Yet despite their weariness, they found themselves unable to sleep. Annabelle, who had not traveled extensively in several years, very much looked forward to sharing some of the world with her young companion. She occupied her time by watching his face for every indication of enjoyment, quite a contrast to the sadness he had displayed since the death of his mother. Hire, who had never been further than Quincy, sat wide awake, staring at the passing scenery with unfeigned excitement, especially when they rolled past Hannibal, the boyhood home of Tom Sawyer. He briefly wondered which of the many high bluffs contained Tom's famous cave, but quickly pushed this thought away, reminding him as it did of his lost treasure. At every twist and turn in the great river, he swept his eyes over the rocky bluffs and vast stretches of snow-dusted floodplains, entranced by it all and scarcely able to conceive of what places he might see on the coming journey. The river traffic was light. The few boats they saw all floated south, away from the thicker ice upriver. Occasionally, they drew alongside other boats, allowing Hire to watch the comings and goings of people on other vessels. And he wondered where they were all going. As the sun began to set, the shadows lengthened and the wind became more brisk 
forcing Hire and Annabelle to move to the warmth of the enclosed upper deck lounge. At a table against the windows, they watched the dimming world through smoke-clouded glass until the reflections of the interior lights made it impossible to see anything outside. As they turned their attention from the windows to their fellow passengers, a dark-haired waiter, well-dressed in black pants and white shirt, approached their table. Will Madame be joining us for supper this evening? His voice reflected the comfort of constant repetition. Annabelle pulled a silver watch from her small black handbag and consulted it. When do you expect we will arrive in St. Louis? The waiter frowned slightly. We're currently running slightly behind the schedule, madam, but with current river traffic, we should arrive on time at seven o'clock. Annabelle frowned, speaking mostly to herself. We have two more hours then, with another hour to get home after that. She looked across the table at Hire and then back to the waiter. I think supper will be necessary. Thank you. With a slight nod, the waiter produced a one-page menu and handed it to Annabelle. She glanced at the list quickly and then held it up so Hire could see it. It's not a very large selection, Hire, but we'll soon find something you like. Let's see. Do you like catfish? He shrugged. I don't mind it, but I never had it with the cream sauce. Annabelle's eyes grew wide with surprise. Hire, can you read? A little bit. Ma taught me. I read Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn mostly by myself. Sometimes I look at newspapers and such. I'd like to try more books, but we only had those two, and Ma told me to keep out of the Squire's library. Annabelle smiled broadly. Maybe it's time you started a library of your own. Ma'am? How would you like it if we made this a book hunting trip? In every town where we rest overnight, you may add one book to your collection. By the time we return, you should have the makings of a fine library. How does that sound? Hire hardly knew what to make of the offer. How many places do you suppose we'll visit? Hmm, that's difficult to say. We might get to a city and decide to stay for several days, or we might find that one day is enough and move on. It should number in the dozens, maybe twenty or so, I should think. That many? He looked back at her, his excitement building. And you'll let me buy them? Let you buy them? No, let us rather say that you must buy them. One for every town. But how shall we carry so many? Annabelle shrugged. We'll ship them back home if needs be. Won't Franklin be surprised? Hire nervously rubbed his hands together. But how shall I pay you back? Annabelle gently placed her hand atop his. By learning to read them. As he looked back at her, tears forming in his eyes, she handed him the menu. Now, decide what you would like to eat, and quickly, I'm famished. 
They arrived in St. Louis slightly ahead of schedule, but had no time to explore. Between the darkness of evening and the need to catch the first available westbound connection, there was no opportunity to see the city. Settling into their seats on a short passenger train, they saw that most of the other travelers were businessmen. Annabelle explained that many of the more successful people in St. Louis had moved their homes outside the city to escape the crowds and bad air. Hire was astounded to learn that so many people could afford to ride the train to and from work every day. He thought St. Louis must be the richest city in the world. Hire eventually grew tired of looking out the window at the darkness and began to fidget. How much longer? An hour. Someone will pick us up at the Monarch Station and take us to the house from there. Hire nodded and settled back into his seat. Soon the rhythm of the rails and the swaying of the car rocked him to sleep. He did not stir until Annabelle nudged him awake. A train had stopped. Hire, dear, we're at the depot. Rubbing the sleep from his eyes, he looked around. Many of the other passengers had already gone, though whether they had disembarked at the station or at previous stops, he could not say. He followed Annabelle down the aisle, blurry-eyed, and descended the steps to the platform below. The boy saw a few others from the train piling into wagons and coaches parked nearby. Annabelle walked directly towards a thin, black-suited man. The fellow stood close to the finest black coach the boy had ever seen, clutching a round-brimmed hat in his hands. Hire thought the man looked odd, but did not immediately understand why he held this impression until they drew closer to him. The man's jet-black hair swept across his head in a thick, shiny wave, matched neither by his gray eyebrows, or his aged and deeply lined face. That face brightened considerably as Annabelle reached him and took his hands in hers. Eamon, I was hoping it would be you. It is good to see you again, miss. He spoke in a gravelly Irish accent, accentuated with a slight hitch as he gasped slightly for air in the middle of the sentence. His Honor and Mrs. Doyle are most anxious to see you. Shall we go? Yes, by all means. She turned slightly towards Hire. This is my young companion, Hire Jameson. The old man bent slightly at the waist. My Honor, Master Jameson. Hire, this is Eamon McGee. The boy mumbled a shy greeting, and she went on. He takes care of the estate for us, and has done so for as long as I can remember. Eamon smiled. Yes, I have had that honor since the old days, miss. He pointed to the coach, on the back of which sat the portmanteaus the travelers had brought with them. The station men of finished loading your things, let us... <clears throat> Be off to Marathon, then. Stepping up to the carriage, Hire found himself seated on thick cushions, softer than he would have imagined. Once settled, he turned to Annabelle. Marathon? 
prior pronounced the unfamiliar word. Is that the town where your folks live? She smiled. No, that's the name of the estate. The man who built it was a famous architect. He made things in the style of the Greeks. Theaters, courthouses, banks, and the like. When he decided to build his home, he wanted a good deal of land to show it off properly. So he bought a large parcel outside of Monarch, overlooking the Missouri River. He designed it to look like a Greek temple, and because it was so far from downtown, he named it Marathon. Pyre stared at her blankly. Marathon was a famous battle in ancient Greece. After the battle, a man named Phytopides, the best runner in all the land, ran 25 miles to Athens in order to carry news of the victory. Seeing that the boy was still confused, she patted him on the shoulder. Browning wrote a fine poem about it. We'll get you a volume. The boy nodded. Was the house really 25 miles from St. Louis? Hmm, more like 26, but close enough for the gesture, I suppose, she grinned. Why did he sell his house? He didn't, in fact. The story of Marathon is a sad one, and worthy of its name. You see, Phytopides was so tuckered out from his run to Athens that he died the moment he delivered his message. Death on the heels of triumph. The architect of our house invested all of his money in the Northern Pacific Railroad, only to see it go bankrupt. He took his own life with a pistol. Hire shuddered. You think his ghost is in the house? Annabelle stroked the boy's hair. He did the deed in his St. Louis office, so I hardly think so. Besides, ghosts are nothing to be afraid of. Ma did not believe in ghosts, or at least she said she didn't. Could be she just didn't want to get me scared at all. Maybe so. If there are ghosts, then I think they are just lonely souls who can't find their rightful place. I don't see why we should fear a soul just because it's lonely, do you? He shrugged. I reckon not. But there is a fearsome soul inhabiting the place, one far more troublesome than any old ghost. She paused for effect. My mother. You're just being silly, Fire snickered. Annabelle slumped back in her chair. I wish I could say so. Truth be told, we've never been as close as we ought to be. And it's worse now that she's the mistress of Marathon and sees herself grander than she is. Don't let on that I told you, but she was just an innkeeper's daughter when my father met her. He was a fine young lawyer then, just starting his practice, but with a good reputation. He could have had any woman in town for his wife, but he only had eyes for pretty little Bianca Strauss. With my father's help, she and her family rose up out of near poverty, and she has been rising ever since. She glanced at Hire and sighed deeply. 
I shouldn't let her get under my skin, but I do. Anyway, I'm only telling you this so that you won't be worried at all if she is impolite or says things that upset me. It's just her way. Before long, we'll be off on our adventure again, with no need to worry about the things she says, all right? He smiled. All right. Good. Let's agree to make the best of it, then. They settled back in their seats. Before long, Hire's head lulled to one side and rested against Annabelle's shoulder. Tired as she was, Annabelle stared out through the curtains, looking for familiar landmarks in the darkness. Anxious and more than a little bit apprehensive, she silently prayed for patience as the carriage rolled through the front gate and down the long, torch-lit drive towards Marathon.